Thanks for being here today, everyone. This here, this here-ness that has us all together. I suggest <clears throat> that we start today by just breathing for a minute or so. So I invite you without any particular instructions to, to simply do what you like to do with breathing, to make it a pause and a chance to center. Notice your surroundings if you'd like, or keep your eyes closed. Collect yourself. Thanks everybody. I'm gonna say the blessing for studying Torah together. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, creator of all, who has given us mitzvot, commandments to fulfill, including this commandment of engaging with the words of Torah. Well, we are in the midst of an episode in our nation's life of, I would say, biblical proportions. Um, and it happens to coincide with the greatest epic and central, uh, the central epic of our Torah, which is the uh, exodus from Egypt. This week's Torah portion is the Va'era. Va'era is the second portion of the book of Exodus. It begins with uh, chapter six, verse two, and continues until, let's see, chapter nine, verse 35, the end of chapter nine. Um, and, um, I'm going to range around a lot today because I don't want to I don't want to actually bore in on a particular verse in the Torah portion today but I want us to get a sense of the sweep of this um archetypal saga that is the centerpiece of our self-understanding as a Jewish people. And I'm going to use that archetype of the oppressive, self-centered, maniacally uh, self-absorbed 
leader, Pharaoh, and the struggle against that force of Moses, who brings a message from the God whose name is I am becoming, who says, you must let my people go. This archetypal story, this, 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 uh, this mythic telling of a um, perennial, eternal human struggle. Pharaoh exists on every level of our experience. Pharaoh exists on the political, social political level of experience, where tyranny is always battling against uh, some kind of a society where everyone can sit neath their vine and fig tree and be unafraid. It also replays in every family where, where someone might try to impose their will on the people over whom they presume they can control. And it recapitulates always within each of us because each of us, if regardless of whether we're on a journey of self growing self-awareness or not, each of us is faced with that same struggle, which is in traditional religious language described as not my will, but thine, right? Whose will will be imposed upon reality? Those who think that their will should be the, the determinate, the, 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 should determinate outcome of situation uh, and puts that will to work disregarding the existence of other wills, other desires, other life forms becomes Pharaoh. And as I've taught many times, and this is the centerpiece of why I'm so committed to the Jewish story is that there is a greater will in the universe, whose name is a verb. I am becoming that which I am becoming, out of which all creativity flows. Who insists, who insists that Pharaoh give way to a greater plan for all living things specifically for the group of people that Pharaoh is oppressing and trying to bend to his will. Well, ripped from the headlines, right? We've never had in my lifetime, in my, in my um, direct experience, um, a leader uh, who who fits the archetype of Pharaoh as um, 
like a glove than Donald Trump. And I don't think there's any way to talk about the book of Exodus and the part, this week's portion without inserting it as an archetype into our experience at this moment. The phrase in the first 10 chapters of Exodus that gets repeated more than any other phrase. And remember, the way the Bible is written in Hebrew, um, the words that get repeated the most are the theme, like in a piece of music. They're what we need to hear over and over again. They're not there by accident ever. This is a literary work, and as such, it's crafted so that we will hear refrains that are supposed to draw our attention. And the, the phrase that is repeated more than any other, more than 15 times, I didn't count them all up, is hardened heart. Okay. Hardened heart is applied to Pharaoh at least 15 times in this narrative. So something about a hardened heart is the antithesis of God's energy. Um, actually, hardened heart is described with three different descriptives in the Hebrew. Oh, Gary wrote, I disagree with the parallel you've drawn, Rabbi. Nothing in the Torah suggests that Pharaoh was mentally unbalanced, which I believe Mr. Trump is. I think that's immaterial, Gary. We're talking about behaviors uh, here, uh, how one treats other people. And um, when you're in a position of power, regardless of why you behave the way you behave, um, if uh, so, I hear you, but I, I don't agree. Thank you. Um, uh, okay, so hardened heart, there are three descriptives. Oh, by the way, I'm riffing everybody. I'm not saying Trump is Pharaoh. Uh, I'm talking about that the Torah presents us with an essential human, the essential human struggle. And that we're seeing it writ large on a national societal level right now. Something that we haven't seen with such clarity, on, sadly, uh, that we're sadly seeing today. Um, Roni, I'm, I'm gonna read your long comment later, okay? Uh, because I wanna keep going with the thread that I'm on right now. But thank you for sending it to me. Um, okay, three descriptives of a hardened heart. One is chazak, chazak. Now, chazak both means, chazak means strong, but lahachazik is to grip, okay? So a gripped heart, lechabed, lahachbid, which means, kaved means heavy. So a heavy heart, but I would say what's here intended is a, a condensed, condensed heart. And the third one is lakshet, which means literally to harden. So gripped, condensed, and hardened. 
Those are the three terms. So how far do we need to go? Not too far, in my opinion, to grasp what uh, the issue here, what the malady is. I don't want to skip over that um, because it's the phrase repeated far more than any other. The other phrase that you hear most is shalach et ami, let my people go. So that is the conflict, a condensed, gripped, hardened heart versus the directive to let people go. That's our story, everybody. And so we have to ask ourselves every day, whom do I serve? Do I serve Pharaoh or do I serve I am becoming what I am becoming? Every moment, every day, that would be, one could say, the Jewish mantra. Um, Okay, there's a moral clarity there, which I appreciate. However, I wanna remind us all that moral clarity is great, but life is messy. And that every situation we encounter, we have to, in a sense, um, process through our moral lens and then try to figure out what it means to serve Yudhei which is the Hebrew name of God, rather than serve Pharaoh. Every situation, every moment, it's actually up to us and always has been and always will be. We are the actors. We are the, um, we're actually the protagonists, each one of us in our life. We're each Moses, right? We're each, am I going to walk in? How am I going to walk into this situation? <sighs> On a societal level, the story of Exodus offers a template for how oppressive regimes establish themselves and function. So again, as I speak, I want you to know that since I read the Torah as a sacred myth, I don't think it's a political manual or a self-help book or a, this. It is a a um, it's a sacred myth. It's gonna it's going to re, it's gonna function for us on whatever level we address it in our lives. In this case, um, in the week since our Pharaoh, who has refused to let go. Um, so much so that he's willing to destroy his own government rather than let go. Um, I am thinking about that level of experience. And so, as you know, when I address the Torah, I'm always bringing my immediate experience to the text to see how it will refract for me and reflect for me back 
what I might need to, what I might learn from this Torah portion. So rather than just address this week's portion, I want to go back to last week, the beginning of the Exodus story, which uh, begins, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph, a new king. So what does it mean to not know Joseph in the context of this story? Who was Joseph? Joseph, we just spent weeks with Joseph. He was the one who said, it's not me who saved your life, it's God. It's not me who interprets dreams, it's God. I can't, am I, Joseph actually says to his brothers in chapter 50, when they come to him begging for forgiveness, he says, am I God? I'm not God. Whatever happened in my life was for some reason, I don't blame you. Let's put it behind us and keep going, right? Joseph, if the, if the new king, the new Pharaoh did not know Joseph, it meant he didn't know this realm of, of um, how to um, understand life. Because Joseph understood that somehow he was a servant of life, not the master, right? We all have to be servants. And again, I think I'll share with you, many of you know this, that the Hebrew word slave, Eved, is the same word as the Hebrew word for servant, Eved, and also for worship, La'avod. So being a slave depends on who your, how your master treats you. Um, let's see, I'll just read a couple more things. Sacred myth doesn't mean not true or fairy tale. It's our stories that they have become sacred because of what they teach us about general human nature and about ourselves. Well said. Warns us of being puffed up and thinking it's all about us. We have the power. Reminds us we're not in charge and how to treat others in ways that are good for all of us. In Hindu, we call it seva. Yes, Roni. Yes, that's right. To be of service. Um, I would say once again, every spiritual tradition has to address this or it's not a worthy tradition because this is the human struggle, isn't it? I mean, we have to be, we have to be self-directing. We have to be agents in our lives. We have to, if, if, we, if we don't develop a strong sense of self and ego and purpose, we're never gonna be able to live our lives. But once we've established that, we then have to ask ourselves, and for what purpose am I exerting myself in the world? Again, this metaphor will replay itself all over the Torah. Uh, what does it mean to worship false gods? Worship, remember, means la'avot, to serve. So regardless of whether we're a slave or a servant, we are serving, who do we serve? Um, Roni asks, do I believe that some people are natural servants and others are not? Uh, I don't have that category, Roni. I, I just think each human being has to take this journey and uh, there'll be countless permutations on it. Um, I think those who choose the journey of the Torah are, 
or of other spiritual traditions are choosing to figure out how to transcend their self-interest in favor of putting themselves in service of something greater. Um, the supreme self of selflessness, indeed. Um, so, um, uh, oh, I mentioned false gods. Yes, I think that's another way that the Torah tries to explain this metaphor, this, 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 this daily challenge and this lifetime challenge. So when it says a new king arose over Egypt at the beginning of the book of Exodus, who did not know Joseph, that's what it means. Joseph was by Pharaoh's, the old Pharaoh's side for a long time. I bet it impacted that Pharaoh. I hope it did. But a new Pharaoh arose. Uh, let me share the screen for a minute and I'll show you that text. This is the beginning of Exodus. I hope that text is visible to everybody. Is it large enough? Okay, okay, good. All right. Um, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are much too numerous for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them so that they may not increase. Otherwise, in the event of war, they may join our enemies in fighting against us and rise up from the ground. Okay. We could spend a long time on this verse. Uh, this new Pharaoh immediately views the Israelites who are the foreigners as a fifth column, immediately assumes they're a danger to the true Egyptians, the true Egypt, and immediately starts plotting to marginalize them and to disempower them. Uh, this is the strategy. Let's see, I'm gonna come back to the text in a little while. This is the strategy of any leader who wants to um, galvanize um, uh, allegiance through fear and uh, through a sense of, um, through fear, by identifying the other. If you look at Trump's playbook, he came down the golden escalator to announce his candidacy and um, declared his first declaration was that Mexican rapists and murderers were coming into our country. He never wavered from that tune. And if you look at, um, so if you can demonize the other and you can say, make Egypt great again, um, then uh, you're on your, your you, you fulfilled rule number one of oppressive leadership. Um, what happens then, it, it continues right along those lines. Um, here, I'll share the screen again. 
the first thing that happens is Pharaoh's first strategy is to set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built garrison cities for Pharaoh, the cities of Piton and Ramses, right? Oppress them with harsh labor, keep them down. But the more they were oppressed, the more they increased and spread out so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. So the Egyptians ruthlessly imposed upon the Israelites the various labors they had made them perform. Ruthlessly, they made life bitter for them with harsh labor at mortar and bricks and with all sorts of tasks in the field. Okay, so having identified the other, um, Pharaoh uh, then sets up an entire societal caste structure to keep the other down, right? He doesn't apologize for it. This is our country. And uh, the other is a fungible concept, right, everybody? Um, it, it, it can, it, we, Jews are, we Jews are the most, maybe the most fungible other that humanity's ever invented. Because uh, we can be the other to almost to anybody. Um, so uh, this is the mechanics of oppression. Marginalize, beat down, and scapegoat, blame, make people fear you, fear that group. But it didn't handle population control. And oh my God, in X number of years, we're not gonna be a majority anymore. So we have to find a way to reduce the population. Now again, Trump's playbook and the playbook of, you know, he didn't do this on his own. He just personified it shamelessly, uh, which is what's, what makes him so uh, unusually outstanding. Um, uh, is you find a way to reduce the population. So the first thing is kill the baby boys. Now, of course, Hitler uh, um, uh, exceeds all in our era, in our age, um, in his um, in his single-minded pursuit of oppressive rule. Mm, and our nation, fortunately and God willing, will never descend to those depths. And I know we're certainly all of us deployed and ready to fight that uh, with everything we've got. But it didn't stop Trump from ripping babies away from mothers at the border, right? From separating families and tossing them back. Uh, however, and this is also the nature of oppressive regimes, a resistance movement begins immediately. The king said to the midwives, uh, when you deliver the Hebrew women, look at the birth stool. If it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, fearing God, did not do as the king of Egypt had told them, and they let the boys live. Um, oh, wait, I want to see the comments in my screen. For, I got to figure this out just a sec. 
There we go. Um, just this week, Rob says, he went to his wall at the Mexican border as a victory lap. Now, I'm not engaging with you on this level to have a policy discussion about immigration, right? I don't know what the solution to a rational and just solution to immigration is. I'm not saying that. I hope you understand that. Uh, we're talking about the mechanics, the, archety the archetype of Pharaoh and what we've seen before our eyes um, in, in this, these last few years. Lucy, Gwen says, Lucy Maud Montgomery wrote that there were two types of people in this world, those who know Joseph and those who don't. Oh, in a sequel to Anne of Green Gables, Oh, Gwen, listen to this. We both belong to the race that knows Joseph, as Cornelia Bryant would say. The race that knows Joseph, puzzled him. Yes, Cornelia divides all the folks in the world into two kinds, the race that knows Joseph and the race that don't. If a person sort of sees eye to eye with you and has pretty much the same ideas about things and the same taste in jokes, why then he belongs to the race that knows Joseph. Now, that's interesting, Gwen. Um, yes, unfortunately, Stephen Miller, who is very Jewish, co-wrote the playbook. No one is immune. We Jews do not have an, some kind of genetic or innate corner on succeeding in this um, eternal struggle. Anyone to change metaphors can get seduced to the dark side. That's Star Wars. In this month, says Roni, Hadassah magazine, uh, Hadassah is a great magazine, a report of how many Jews left in Europe 21st century, almost extinct according to scholar Bernard Wasserstein. Yes, um, yes, Hitler was pretty successful. Um, okay. But here's the resistance that is born at the moment, almost at the very moment that tyranny tries to take hold. The midwives fearing God did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing letting the boys live? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, and you've heard me teach this many times, those who've been with me, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they are vigorous. Here, there's the word, chayot. Chayot means animals, everyone. They are animals. Before the midwife can come to them, they've already given birth. So the midwives speak to Pharaoh in his own language. He is determined that the Israelites are less than human, that they're animals, that they swarm on the earth. And the midwives speak to him and say, oh yeah, we, we, we couldn't, you know, you know, those slaves, they, they, they can't get anything done, they're lazy, right? Or whatever excuse is used to keep the master at bay. And the women, I just thought of the women's march in January of 2017, right after the inauguration, and how millions and millions of women and, and, and men who supported them came out on the streets, 
saying, we, we're taking a stand. So here's to the midwives. Now, I'm gonna use up all my time before I get out of chapter one. So I wanna jump ahead because um, in chapter five, which is the lead in to, um, to this week's portion, which starts in chapter six. So forgive me while this scrolls by. Oh, that was fast. Okay, I wanna look at chapter five, verse one and two. So Moses has gotten his call. He's back in Egypt. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says yod Hey vav I am that I am the God of Israel. Let my people go that they may celebrate a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is yod Hey vav that I should heed yod Hey vav and let Israel go? I do not know yod Hey vav nor will I let Israel go. Um, so this is the statement in the telling that I'm sharing with you, the statement that if you and your personal ends are the only thing you serve, there is no way you will understand that there's a greater will or know that there is a creative force called yod heh that sustains all life. You don't know. You don't know, you don't care. And they say, please let us go. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you distract people from their tasks? Get to your labors. The people of the land are already so numerous and you would have them cease from their labors. And the same day, Pharaoh charged the taskmasters and foremen of the people saying, you shall no longer provide the people with straw for making bricks as heretofore. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but impose upon them the same quota of bricks as they've been making heretofore. Do not reduce it for they are shirkers. Okay, the Hebrew word for shirkers, nirpim. Um, nirpim means in modern Hebrew, lazy, indolent. Okay, look at the language. Think about the talk about immigrants or about black people or about anyone who wasn't born with a silver spoon in their mouth and was anyone who wasn't born on third base. Okay, indolent and he screams at them. Um, Let heavier work be laid upon the men let them keep at it and not pay attention to deceitful promises. And so he doubles their labor, no decrease in their quota. They're utterly exhausted. Um, And so what happens? The foremen of the Israelites, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them. Okay, so the the, the Israelite foremen who are keeping their people in line uh, say, came to Pharaoh and said, why do you deal thus with your servants? 
No straw is issued, yet you demand make bricks. He replied again, shirkers, shirkers. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Off now to your work. No straw, but produce your quota of bricks. And now the foremen found themselves in trouble because of the order. You must not reduce your daily quantity of bricks. And as they left Pharaoh's presence, they came upon Moses and Aaron standing in their path. And they said to them, what are you doing to us? It's like you're putting a sword in their hands to slay us. And Moses returned to the Lord. So it's classic. It's like, I just happened to watch on the waterfront um, uh, on the classic movie channel the other night. It's, it's how the labor boss works. It's how the mo- it's just how you do it. You make life so miserable for the ones trying to organize that they go back to their leaders and say, we, you know, this isn't going to work. You, you know, you're making life worse for us. It's the, it's the mechanics of, of how to maintain an oppressive system. And Moses says to God, what are you doing? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's dealt worse with his people and you still haven't delivered them. And God says, you'll see. He will go, let them go. Pharaoh will let them go because of a greater might. Indeed, because of a greater might, he shall drive them from his land. And we come to this week's portion. So we're in this very... We're in this very challenging moment. A greater might? What does that mean? Now, in the Bible story, it means that the force of life itself will not be stayed. It won't, no tyrant can ever hold down the stream, the mighty stream of justice that King loved to quote from Amos. Uh, it's it will it will become unblocked. It will flow like a mighty stream. But in a story like this, that force becomes personified. Personified as what? As God. As some first principle that we put our faith in in the universe. But in real life. That force doesn't manifest as an external energy. It's what humans summon. It's when enough people summon that energy to meet that force with equal and opposing force. And it causes great damage. The more damage caused, however much damage is caused, is as a result of how hard the heart is of the tyrant who has established himself. And so if we then begin imagining the plagues, it's the confrontation between the tyrant who will in no way will do everything in his power to stop the flow of the stream of justice and that force rising up 
in the society, amongst the individuals in that society. Our society has that understanding of justice baked into its DNA, even though it's always been manifested unjustly. But one of the things that I still believe as an American is that it's the advantage we have is that it is expressed as a principle of our existence, that all men, all humans are created equal, every one of them having inalienable rights, right? That in God we trust means to me in the God that we're describing in this story. That's who we trust and serve. But the longer power, human uh, uh, selfish power, the hardened heart resists this impulse, the harder and more destructive and more painful the struggle becomes, the more damage, the more death, the more, it's not a foregone conclusion that, uh, that things won't be raised to the ground before they can be built up again. The peaceful transfer of power is revolutionary to everybody. It's a, it's a revolutionary concept. What monarch prior to this modern understanding ever, even if they were benevolent, ever considered themselves as someone who should peacefully transfer their power to another leader? The peaceful transfer of power for me is a manifestation of this idea that let my people go, that there is a path towards greater and greater um, manifestation of a society that supports the life of all its citizens. However terribly we manifest that, we still have that concept. And so the plagues for me, aren't the question which gets asked frequently when we study this story, why is God being so mean to the Egyptians? That's the wrong question. Um, the question is, I mean, the, the situation is, how long will it take for the hardened heart to yield? When people talk about Pharaoh, the Pharaoh in them it, in terms of addiction, you know, we talk about hitting rock bottom. When, uh, when someone has been deluded by addiction to serve, the, the, to serve their addiction with all their might, and they lose sight of a greater good and a greater will, they lose sight of the needs of the people around them. Um, their world starts to crumble around them. And, and, some, and, and so they may find themselves like Pharaoh with their firstborn dead, their kingdom a pile of rubble before they even understand anything about what led them to that point. Because Pharaoh's an archetype, he doesn't even understand it at that point. After the 10th plague, he says, go, 
go, just go. And then once the Israelites have left, he once again has a change of heart. Pharaoh is an archetype. Um, I would say Donald Trump is an archetype uh, and needs to be viewed as such. Um, I use the addiction metaphor, just the addiction um, uh, description, just to uh, change the analogy a little bit so that you can, so now apply it to Pharaoh, King of Egypt, Trump, President of the United States, has managed through this campaign of demonization to ally much energy with him. And now, as he tries to dismantle the system of democracy that has allowed us, however, however mm, haltingly, to continue to try to manifest um, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, um, uh, the society starts to fray. Things start to fall apart. We're in a plague, for God's sake. I'm not blaming anyone in particular for that, but it's unavoidable to say that at this moment. But I don't know which number plague out of the 10, having the, the uh, Capitol building overrun by murderous uh, 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 ransacking um, supporters of the Pharaoh. I don't know which plague that is. God, I hope it's the last one. But we don't know. The stories, we're in the middle of the story right now. Um, let's see, I'll just read a couple more things. I heard the Lama at the Tibetan monastery say this. In Tibet, at the invasion of the Chinese, the teaching was, you get the transmission from God now. You understand that God is within all of us and you yoke to the God in you now or suffering will be too hard to bear this persecution and mistreatment by Pharaoh. Oh yes, each of us has the own in, our own internal challenge to not become a hardened heart person, right? No matter what the external circumstances are. Paul Bloom said, when one recovers from addiction, it rarely happens after one round. Yep, usually takes several or many rounds for anyone to, if we're fortunate enough to finally recover. Sarah said, from what you're saying, I appreciate the idea that there can be a peaceful transfer of power internally. Yes, from a willful Pharaoh-based consciousness to a willing, I am becoming that which I am becoming consciousness. Thank you, Sarah, in my own life, over the last, in my adult life, especially in my many years of therapy, I have, I have with good therapists, been forced to look at myself in the mirror and see how I'm trying to impose my will on my wife, on my children, on my congregation, on, and each time tr try to shine a light on that and say, wait, even though I'm benevolent, for God's sakes, I'm not a bad Pharaoh. To peel it away over and over again, it involves a lot of humility, a lot of fighting back, a lot of unconsciousness. This is quite the beautiful and challenging path of life. Um, but the reward for me is not being in charge of other people. 
<laughs> strangely enough, uh, but instead just having my heart open to them. It doesn't mean that I don't have a moral compass. It doesn't mean that I don't call out crap when I see it. It doesn't mean, it just means I'm not in charge of the world. I'm trying to serve a greater consciousness. <sighs> Never gets old, everybody. Um, and uh, again, if anybody says that they've arrived, uh, they should go back to their mentor and talk to them again. Because this is, this is the daily challenge, getting out of bed every day. Um, thank you, Sarah. Act one, scene one, yeah. Susan says, that wasn't a plague from God, it was due to Pharaoh. Ah, yes, poor leadership indeed. Is Torah means by which one generation peacefully transfers to the next, knowing that it can take a long time for a society to get it? Torah, the educational process to peacefully achieve this. Well, what do we say when we put the Torah away in the ark every Shabbat? She is a tree of life for them that, that uh, uh, um, hold on to it. And all who do, all who support this are, me'ushar means happy. Uh, her pathways are paths of pleasantness. And all its ways are ways of peace. And then it says, um, bring us back. Hashivenu Adonai to you. Bring us back, source of life, to you and renew us as it was in the beginning. So, yes, if we understand Torah now not as some kind of law book or constitution, but as the instructions, if we are with the God who says, speaks from the burning bush, then yes, we need to grasp this and continue to try to unfold the pathways of peace and have the peaceful transitions of power. A peaceful transition would be from one person who understands that they're a servant of something of the greater good to the next person who understands themselves as a servant of the greater good. Why wouldn't I want to transfer at that point? And that is the social contract that has kept, allowed America to do this for all these uh, with centuries and I repeat, with an incredible amount way to go, but it's that shared understanding of what it means to be a public servant that allows this, this to continue. Uh, Resma, place says, Resma Nunakam says nine generations to heal abolish white supremacy. Oh, okay. I wonder which generation we're in. <sighs> um, so I just want to share, I'll close with this. So this is the archetypal story that our Torah portion is telling right now. 
one of the ways to understand the archetype the, the, is to look at the Haftorah portions that the rabbis chose to comment on the Torah portion. As the rabbis would always, for each week's reading, they choose a passage from the prophets that they feel amplifies the core teaching of the, the weekly portion. Now, I don't have these ready to put up for you, so I'll have to read this to you. For this week's Torah portion, Ba'era, the Haftorah passage is from Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is addressing Egypt. Of course, it's many centuries later. This is a different Pharaoh and a different Egypt. But the archetype that Ezekiel draws from is the archetype from this story that we're studying. Speak these words, thus says the eternal God. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You great crocodile, you are like the great crocodile crouching in its river branches. Oh, Yaor in the Nile. By the way, the word Yaor in Hebrew just means the river. That's how the Nile was just the river. It's like the city for us, you know, it's like we know what we're talking about here, okay. Pharaoh, you are like the great crocodile crouching in its river, river thinking, saying, my river is mine. I made it for myself. Okay. And then, therefore, because you thought the river is mine, I made it. Egypt will be a desolation, a ruin. And then they shall know that I am the source of all. That's like hitting rock bottom, right? You're in there, you're in the Nile River. The Nile, the, in Egypt, the Nile is the source of all life, right? And you say, I made it. That's like us idiots taking credit. What can we take credit for in our lives? How much really? And now think about our current Pharaoh who has no sense other than he is entitled to everything that has come his way. That's why, that's why Trump fits this archetype so, so succinctly. Um, Susan Falk said, I remember George W. Bush at Obama's inauguration, getting on the plane and waving goodbye and smiling. Yeah. This time Trump isn't going to end the inauguration. I'll also share with you the Haftar portion for next week's portion. They quote Jeremiah, who says, he's declaring against Egypt again, Jeremiah is, and says, there they called Pharaoh king of Egypt, Sha'on He'evir Hamoed. So this is, uh, it means the big noise who has missed his chance. I kid you not. That's the Haftarah for next week. That's Pharaoh's name as far as Jeremiah is concerned. The big noise who missed his chance. I just hope that our big noise misses his chance before more people die and before more people suffer and before the fabric of our society is torn even further because we do not know 
how to repair this yet. We don't know if it can be repaired. We don't know what our great kingdom of Egypt, what our is going to look like when this is all over, how much rubble, how much, how, how much, how many casualties, how much lost, we don't know. But I can tell you that we know which side we're on if we, if we consider ourselves servants of I am becoming what I am becoming. And as such, we need to have faith that even out of the rubble, that energy that we battle for both in ourselves and in our society will once again, and it inevitably, eternally rise up in human hearts that aren't clutched and frozen and hardened. Uh, I wanna bless us all that anything that's, that needs opening here can be open so we can keep our eye on that prize. And uh, I also just once again pray that, um, that the 10th plague has already passed for us and that somehow we're going to be able to uh, let our people go and move forward. That was a long lecture, everybody. I hope it uh, fed your spirit.